0: Hey everyone, it's Mary Harris. And I'm going to drop something in your feed right now that has nothing to do with the news. It's a conversation I had last week with Rebecca Traister from New York Magazine. Rebecca, you might know her as the bard of female rage. She wrote this book, Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger. And when Elizabeth Warren dropped out of the presidential race, Rebecca was the person I just really wanted to talk to. So, I did. But then, all this news happened. But it's still a great conversation, and we wanted to put it here because if you're like me, you could use a distraction right now. Anyway, here's a pretty dressed down version of the conversation Rebecca and I had last week. Yes.
2: You and the okay. All right. So I announced this morning uh, that I am suspending my campaign for president. Um, one of
0: the reasons why I thought of you, I thought of you for a million reasons, but one of the reasons was that when Elizabeth Warren backed out of the race, she went in front of her house. She gave this speech and there was this moment where it felt like she was calling out to you.
1: <laughs> well, that works because I was calling out to her from a room somewhere. <laughs> yes. I mean,
0: she she talks about sexism in the yeah. race and she does it in this subtle way funny way that was almost quoting you word for Mm. word something that you wrote when was Mm. it six months ago
1: oh about the trap Yeah. yeah
0: yeah about the sexism trap she says
2: gender in this race you know that is the trap question for everyone uh if you say yeah there was sexism in this race everyone says whiner and if you say, no, there was no sexism, about a bazillion women think, what planet do you live on? Um, and
0: she said, I'm going to have a lot more to say about this mm-hmm. later. Mm-hmm.
1: I, yes, I noted that as well. And yes, that is that is uh, a point that I made in a column uh, six months ago. There was something about this year watching so many people press these candidates to do the work of explaining bias and realizing that it puts them in this impossible, untenable bind because it is she's absolutely right. If they describe it, they will be cast, not just as whiners, but as people who are making some kind of excuse, no matter how real it is, no matter how accurate the descriptions they're offering are. The amazing thing about her campaign right up until the last couple of months, she didn't make the gender conversation about herself because she obviously knew the perils of that. But though lots of people said, Oh look, she's not running like Hillary Clinton did in 2016. She's not advertising her as herself as this historic candidate. She's not talking about gender or playing the woman card. What she was doing through these series of like tentpole speeches, beginning with her first in Lawrence, Massachusetts was reimagining a story of American history
2: built by women, which is a really subversive act. A group of women who worked right here at the Everett Mill discovered that their bosses had cut their pay.
1: You know, she began with this story of the women in the Lawrence textile mills and the labor movement. They shut down those looms and they walked out. She gave the speech in Washington Square Park about Frances Perkins and the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. We're here
2: because of some hard-working women.
1: She gave a speech in November that was remarkable in Atlanta about the 1881 Atlanta
2: washerwomen's strike um, that brought that city's economy to a halt. A handful of black women had built a movement strong enough to force an entire city of wealthy elites and public officials to back down. And then she gave a speech in Boston at New Year's about Phyllis Wheatley. She imagined a world that did not yet exist, but a world she could see. She penned ideals of a better America. Ultimately, she inspired leaders like George Washington himself. I mean, it's been like an incredible American history course on gender and
1: power in the United States. And she did it almost entirely until the end when the conversation sort of got forced to being about her. She did it all without making reference to her own campaign and her own experiences as a woman in politics. I I mean, I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was brilliant. And for a long time, it was really working.
0: But at the same time, if you're the only one telling the story like that, in that way, it it makes it challenging.
1: Yes, but if you're a woman in presidential politics, from one angle or another, still, you're often the only one telling any version of the story, right? It's always a test. We don't have a model by which we understand a a Democratic woman or any woman, and especially in the case of Elizabeth Warren, who comes, you know, who is the left wing of the Democratic Party, really challenge white capitalist patriarchal norms. (laughs) Um, There's not a model for how that wins. Um, Mm -hmm. There was Shirley Chisholm in 72, who's rhetoric was brilliant and challenging and disruptive but her candidacy was always understood as largely symbolic there wasn't the sense that she was actually going to be the nominee much less the president in 1972. I believe we
2: are intelligent enough to recognize the talent energy and dedication which all Americans including women and minorities have to offer and then
1: the sort of first person who really comes close is Clinton in 2008. And her approach, her her gambit in 2008 was to basically pretend that she wasn't running as a woman. It was to run as like practically somebody who'd already been president, you know?
2: I'm excited to be running as a woman, but as a friend of mine said, what else could I be running as? And, but I'm not running because I'm a woman. I'm running because I think I'm the best qualified and Well,
0: her style was quite masculine.
2: Right, well, and I think that It matters
1: what kind of world you've lived your professional life in. Um, And I think Hillary Clinton um, lived her life uh, and her professional life in a very male-dominated world in which there were certain um, kinds of stylistic approaches that were taken seriously if you were the only woman in that world. And one of them was to present as, you know, confident and aggressive. And was there another way? Maybe but for the first, but I don't know. That's the first we got.
0: Right. And it felt to me like Elizabeth Warren, she had this gift, which is she was not of politics. She was in politics.
1: Right. Warren is such an unusual figure because she did come to politics so late. She had lived her whole life as a a teacher, a professor, mostly a law professor. Um, And she felt like a teacher on the stump. In 2019, one of the most fun stories I have ever written was a story about her teaching career. And it was so much fun to write because there is truly nothing more cheerful, especially in a period of deep anxiety, than having hundreds of people call and tell you the story of their favorite teacher. <laughs> um, it was like, it was so, everybody wanted to tell me their story about Elizabeth Warren, their teacher, their mentor, the time she invited them over for a barbecue at her house, all these fun things about what an incredible and inspiring and demand, yes, very demanding mentor she was. But also, one of the fascinating things about that story is that there was a deeper, a lot of what the students told me was about the work she was doing within this elite institution to transform it. So she had a lot of status and a tenured law professor, and, but she didn't choose to serve on some of the higher status, like hiring committees, which are more about like um, the status of the institution, right? Like hiring other high profile people to come. She was on the admissions committee.
0: Because she wanted to control who was coming in?
1: Yes. Yes, she did. <laughs> what she wanted to do was ensure that this elite institution was not just taking students who were already coming from elite climes.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then there was also the her approach to teaching, the traditional Socratic method, which had been criticized in the past by people, by her then Harvard colleague, Lonnie Guinier, um as sort of... Uh, being particularly hard on marginalized students. But in fact, she tried to tailor, she was reportedly, according to like the, the zillions of people who would tell me about it, she was this kind of absolute expert at using this method where you just call on people cold. And she would use it to ensure her argument, which she speaks about, was that it ensures that it is not just the most confident who often wind up being the already most powerful people who are having the conversation with the professor. Hmm. And she was dedicated to it because she felt it helped to level a playing field at a place where there was so much power in the room. um, And she understood how that power could just build on itself unless there was somebody who was willing to disrupt and try to level, level that playing field.
0: I mean, hearing you describe Warren's rise, you can sense this consistency in who she has been and what she's been working towards. But can we talk about also the fact that there were some real failings on behalf of the campaign? Oh, yeah. I think that's the the hard thing for me, looking at all of the sort of postmortems that talk so much about sexism, because... There were things. I mean, one of my colleagues here at Slate said, oh, every two weeks there's some kind of misstep. You know, whether it's sort of this two or three step Medicare for all plan that Warren came out with, whether it's, you know, the thing that launched her campaign, this DNA test to sort of prove her native ancestry, which got her into so much trouble justifiably. Yes, very justifiably. (laughs) With the native community or native communities. Yes,
1: yes. So there are a bunch of explanations. One is that she wound up in part at the behest of the center of the party and lots of debate moderators asking her how she was going to pay for Medicare for all. And she you took know, the assignment. She took the <laughs> assignment. She did the math. And I wish that she hadn't. Medicare for All was something that she supported, and she was a co-sponsor of Bernie Sanders' bill, but that was his animating issue. Her animating issue getting into this race was fighting corruption. And in, in taking the assignment and doing the math on Medicare for All, she wound up incurring the wrath of both, <laughs> you know, the right, center, and left, you know? But the big thing for me that I'm focused on, and I'm not claiming it's the only reason, is that at the beginning of November, the New York Times published its Battleground State Polling, in conjunction with Sienna. And to me, this is one of the most salient factors in the story of Elizabeth Warren's candidacy, because over and over again, even before that polling, what you heard were people who, with a hangover from 2016 and Hillary, were nervous about making the woman the candidate again, right, this question, can women win? And it is not an irrational question, right? I also think the answer to it is yes, 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 a Democratic woman can win, but we actually have to vote for her in order to do it. But the Times publishing those battleground state polls, and I really respect polling, and I understand that it has a really crucial function, but the Times put it on the front page. And some of it, I think it it was wild that they extrapolated so much from it. Like, they did these head-to-head matchups in, like, Michigan. Right, Michigan, November.
0: Wisconsin, Florida. They looked at all of the battleground states.
1: Right. And, and what they pulled in part were these head-to-head matchups, you know, of the top three candidates, who at that point were Warren, Biden, and Sanders against Trump. And what they found were that in all these states, it was mostly Biden who was viewed as being able to beat Trump. And this struck fear in the heart of so many people.
0: Yeah, the the headline from this is one year from election, Trump trails Biden, but leads Warren in battlegrounds.
1: (laughs) Right. Which also, as Bernie Sanders supporters will point out, involves the total erasure of the guy in the middle. (laughs) It's doing better. But it was so everything about it was kind of wild, including the first words one year out from election, which was like Okay, again, I don't want to disrespect the process of polling or the kind of information that a poll like that could give us, but polling Michigan in November of 2019, months before the primary race has even really gotten to Michigan, when so much of what turns up in polls is going to be name recognition. And the greatest name recognition of those three is the guy who's been vice president for eight years. And the next amount of name recognition is going to go to the guy who ran for president and had a super successful campaign you know, in 2016.
0: So you're saying a poll like this can kind of create a reality.
1: It sure did. It sure did create a reality. And I'm not blaming that entirely. On, I mean, I don't mean to say, like, that's what did it. But I think it was a huge factor. I wonder, though, if
0: conservative or moderate listeners would hear us talking right now and just say, these are a couple of lefties who took it pretty hard that this candidate they really liked is out of the race.
1: hmm <laughs> that, that checks out. <laughs> <laughs> My hope for both of the left candidates was that uh, Bernie was going to vastly expand the number of young voters and new voters who came out for him, and that Warren was going to expand the appeal of Policy positions that are considered left, but I think are like totally reasonable, (laughs) Um, but going to expand their appeal.
0: It's funny because what you're talking about isn't a person winning. It's like ideas winning.
1: And that's one of the complications of the presidency in particular that I think makes it different in some ways from House races, from state legislative races. We're voting for individuals. And so much of the way our news covers those individuals who are running for president obsesses about them as individuals. Um, And it becomes cult of personality stuff. And is that part of the reason why Warren lost? Uh, It's interesting because I actually think one of the things that was defining about Warren, people really liked her. (laughs) I mean, the number one thing you'd hear is like, I like her, I just don't think she can win. And, and that is, I don't, I don't want to return to an explanation of, of sexism. It's not even sexism, it's what Linda Hirschman has called sexism by proxy, right? Um, you know, I like her, I'd vote for her, but I don't think other people are going to vote for her. It's like taking a correct assessment of America's past in which we have never elected a woman president, and projecting it as a future inevitability. And it's the part where we project them and decide that that history is going to govern our future, where we run into these frustrating dynamics. Frustrating if you're someone who liked Warren. Also building an actual base of watching women win. I mean, that's something we have to remember. We're really new to this in presidential politics. You know, there's there's a woman named Barbara Lee in Boston who has done a lot of research on particularly women governors. And one of the things that she's found over the years is that the huge stumbling block is actually electing the first woman. Once a state has a woman governor, then they're very happy, voters are very happy to re-elect her, elect more women. It's really breaking the seal, that's the biggest challenge. And that is obviously a challenge that we're seeing on a presidential level. But one of the things that we're doing while we're busy not breaking the seal on the presidential election is populating our government and our leadership with so many other women and normalizing um, every, every um, woman candidate, every female candidate out there who is in the news, in the headlines, taking leadership positions, becoming a, a beloved voice, even a controversial voice, is normalizing um, women's political leadership for us. We are in the midst of fixing this. It's just that we can't always do it in one fell swoop. In fact, we almost never do.
0: Rebecca Traster, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: That was New York Magazine writer Rebecca Traister. She's the author of the book Good and Mad. I'm Mary Harris. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you back here tomorrow.
1: This is the story of The One.